You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 25th of January 2019 on Monocle 24. It's Saturday the 25th of January. This is Monocle's House View. Today, the World Economic Forum used to be seen as an event for world leaders and business heads. So why are some sections of the press treating it like a celebrity awards show? Plus, as impeachment brews in the United States and tensions with China simmer, is a new trade row with Europe on the way next? All that and the day's newspapers too. Monocle's House View starts now. Good morning and welcome to Studio One at Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. I'm joined this morning by two of our favourite friends. Elizabeth Braw, who leads the Modern Deterrence Programme at Rusi, and the political analyst Carol Walker. Good morning to both of you. Good morning. You know, before we started, I wanted just to talk a little bit about your day jobs. Um, Because, uh, Carol, of course, you have spent years and years working on British politics uh, for the BBC and for other outlets. It's all gone a bit quiet, though, hasn't it? Yeah, there's been an extraordinary and dramatic change since the new year. We've been, since 2016, living on the brink of one political drama and crisis after another. We've had hugely unstable governments. Suddenly, since the general election just before Christmas, we've got a government with a huge majority. Uh, And extraordinarily, Brexit, this enormous issue, this huge decision which has divided the nation, preoccupied the airways months after months. Well, yesterday, the withdrawal agreement between the UK and the EU was signed by Boris Johnson and the EU leadership. And although it's splashed all over the front page of the Daily Telegraph, it barely rated a mention on the news bulletins. It's extraordinary, isn't it, Elizabeth? Barely a ripple. That's right. And Actually, it's it's not just in the UK that it barely registers. It's in the rest of Europe too. I, I listen to German radio in the morning. So barely, I, actually, there wasn't a single mention of it on the news bulletin this morning. So, I think maybe we are all too tired of Brexit, and it has turned into an anticlimactic thing when when it actually happens. Uh, I guess we won't have Big Ben ringing, and uh, nobody registers that the thing has been signed. I mean, it's, it is extraordinary that in a week from now the UK will be outside the European Union. We will have left. Um, and it seems as though that event, obviously some of the um, ardent campaigners for Brexit will be out celebrating in Parliament Square, but it's hardly going to be a huge news event. Mm, I'm going to a party and we've, I've been told very strictly that, that we will not be celebrating. <laughs> it's not a, a celebratory occasion. And imagine this would actually be an occasion when if you were a Brexit supporter, you could have a party called the Brexit Party, but I guess <laughs> the, the Brexit Party ain't, <laughs> ain't going to happen. Yeah. Uh, Elizabeth, looking at your day job, of course, it's, it's, it's about sort of modern threats. Just tell me exactly what it is that your job entails. Yeah, so you you already described the, the name of the program, program, which is modern deterrence, and people, when they hear deterrence, think of nuclear. Well, actually, the threats that face our societies, so not just the UK, but liberal democracies today, 
are not just about nuclear. In, fa- in fact, it's primarily about things other than nuclear or military threats. So, so it's disinformation, it's cyber attacks, it's hostile business practices, which is a, a rapidly growing concern. So what happens if, for example... Chinese companies linked to the government, as, as as obviously most Chinese companies are, if they hoover up uh, cutting-edge technology companies in our countries, which is the case, well, what do we do about that? And the UK and other countries have, for a long time, for years, have kept a close eye on, on defence contractors. If a foreign company wants to buy a defence contractor, the government says, no, no. Uh, but actually... Today, it's uh, uh, the, the growing concern is about tech companies. So, what if China buys them up? And uh, that has happened in in the US, Germany. Uh, there was a big uh, report in Sweden. So, things like that are actually much more immediate threats to our societies than, than nuclear war. It doesn't mean that we we shouldn't worry about nuclear war mm. at, or or an invasion. But actually, these things happen every single day. And if I may mention an example very quickly, Grinder, which is a gay dating app was bought last year, or in 2018, by a Chinese company. Nobody thought anything of it. Then, last year, the US regulator woke up and said, ooh, maybe that's a bit of a concern if China has access to all the data that's on Grindr. Mm. <laughs> and somebody said, maybe Trump was on Grindr. Anyway, the US regulator... <laughs> Do you think <laughs> Trump's on Grindr? How fantastic. <laughs> well, anyway, the US regulator realized the national security implications of the Chinese government having access to whatever is on Grindr and very unusually reversed the acquisition. So now uh, uh, Grindr has has to essentially reverse its acquisition by, by this Chinese company because it was a national security concern. But presumably they've already had their their time with all that data. If they wanted the data from Grindr, they've had it. That's right. And that's why these, these interventions have to happen earlier, before any yeah. acquisition, so that uh, we are not left completely exposed, whatever the company is. Mm. And and also so that the company stays in the country where it was created. So in the case of a, a German company uh, maker of industrial robots, it was bought up by a Chinese company. Well, lo and behold, uh, after a while, it was no longer a, Ch- a German company. It was a Chinese company servicing the, the Chinese market. Yeah. I want to come back to that in a little while because we're going to look at sort of the economics and whether that is the next sort of frontier. But first, let's talk a little bit about Davos because it's done and dusted for another year. But I wonder if we've forgotten what it's really about. I mean, our Robert Bound wrote this week that the event used to be of interest primarily to the financial and international political press. <laughs> but now everybody's chiming in with a, a hot take, a, a kind of dreaded term, we've got to admit. Uh, has the coverage of Davos just become a little bit silly, Carol? Well, is Davos itself perhaps just a little bit silly? I mean, what was fascinating was that the organisers of the World Economic Forum declared that this year's gathering was going to be all about climate change. We then had this wonderful scenario where the rich and powerful from around the world all jetted in on their private planes, or in Donald Trump's case, a whole fleet of planes with armoured vehicles and so on in order to talk about how we should be reducing our carbon emissions. On one level, uh, clearly there is a a validity and a benefit in bringing together in the same place people like President Trump, who once again mocked climate change activists, saying that they were all doom-mongers, and Greta Thunberg, who gave a, a classically 
powerful and passionate speech um, urging the world to do more. And I think the problem with Davos is that although there is something to be gained from bringing together so many rich and powerful people, business leaders, people from uh, charities, from campaigning groups, at least they have a dialogue. But the problem with it is that at the end of it, nothing is actually decided. This is not like a summit where you have conclusions and everybody signs up to it at the end. Mm. Everybody comes in, um, they make the, some connections. Um, some of those may well be useful on a smaller scale. But what you don't see is any agreement on any steps that might actually be taken to address the serious issues of things like climate change. And a lot of it is about, to use again another horrible phrase, the optics. Um, the optics were got terribly wrong in, in one set of photographs, weren't they, uh, Elizabeth? I'm thinking here of Greta Thunberg and the Ugandan climate change activist. That's right. So five young women from, well, from different parts of the world um, Post for this photo, climate activists, as you said, and then uh, when the photo was published, the only uh, black face among them had been cut out. Now, she was at the far left end of the photo, so I, I guess photo edit editors can argue that uh, it was just too, too, uh, it was too wide to be published and they had to cut somebody out. But at the same time, why could they not have put, what could the photographer not have put the black woman in the middle? Because actually, for example, one of the women on the picture, actually three of the women on the picture were not that well known. It was just Greta who was well known, so they could easily have removed somebody else. But if I can just uh, add to, to Carol's point about Davos, I think the fundamental issue with Davos is that everybody who gets invited is so pleased to invite it. So how, uh, why would they then criticize it? And so there's this club of people who are there so for, for self-congratulating. Sort of exactly. Yeah. And that goes for the journalists too because not every journalist is invited and so if you're invited you of course want to make sure you're invited the next year again and so it becomes this really sort of incestuous thing where everybody is pleased or uh, thrilled to to be counted as part of this exclusive club and, and as Carol said nothing much ever comes out of it and we should remember that the goal of Davos is the Im improving the state of the world. Well, when has Davos actually improved the state of the world? Mm. And when you talk about the optics there, it was an overwhelmingly white male gathering. Uh, and they, they did have a special tent, the female quotient equality lounge, where you could actually see women getting together and talking. But the fact that they had to have a separate lounge, uh, I, I think um, in this day and age, it, it, it seems quite extraordinary. And indeed, there was um, a wonderful moment, apparently, when Finland's prime minister um, was on a, a, a platform. There was a, a male moderator and who asked uh, Sanna Marin, well, how does it work in the, the, the Finnish cabinet? You've got five female leaders all there sitting around the table. And uh, she turned around and says, well, do you know, amazingly, it works like any other government. We don't even need a special meeting room or anything. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Well, a lot of major names present at Davos, but as you say, very few women. I think one in four was a woman. Uh, but if you switch on the news in the States today, you'll find the impeachment, of course, of Donald Trump dominating the airwaves. But lots of tension, as, as we were alluding to, between Washington and Beijing simmering. Uh, a row brewing now with Europe, it would appear, over trade and the UK. 
Do we think the political year ahead will really be decided by economics and trade deals rather than anything more sexy, if you like, <laughs> Elizabeth? Well, for the UK, that's certainly the case. It, and uh, everybody <coughs> will have seen in the news that uh, just uh, yesterday, I think, uh, Sajid Javid was told by his US counterpart that it, um, the US would very closely monitor the UK's decision on Huawei and 5G and whatever the UK's decision is will factor into the trade talks. Now, the UK desperately wants a, a trade deal with, with the US. So this would be a major, major deal for the UK. Now, most people don't care about which provider provides 5G, the 5G network, but it is a, a very um, difficult political decision. And, and so... Uh, this government is in a tough spot. They, if they go with Huawei, which may be what they want to do, they won't get that trade deal with the US, uh, which is another thing they really want. And so trade, as unsexy as, as it is, as you say, will, I think, dominate uh, a lot of headlines or at least political talks. And we should remember that, that the China-US spat continues. And if Trump is so minded, it will flare up again in, in a major way. Mm. Yeah, I mean, fascinating. You, you talk about trade being the big focus. But what we're seeing is that all, in all of this manoeuvring, the, the possibility of trade deals is bringing in all kinds of different issues. So as Elizabeth has said, um, of course, the UK now about to leave the EU um, is going to be trying to do both an EU trade deal and a US trade deal. Oh, and by the way, try to uh, tie up some trade deals with some of those other countries with whom it currently trades with as part of the EU bloc. It now wants to try to carry those over. But what you're seeing, as Elizabeth has been talking out there about there, is that all these different issues about security, about power, are coming into play with the Americans threatening that if the UK uses Huawei, which it sees as a security threat, well, then that's going to damage security uh, cooperation. Um, we're already seeing the UK saying to the EU, well, look, yeah, um, we are prepared not just to slap tariffs on EU goods if you're not going to um, give us the sorts of favourable terms that we want, but, oh, well, we'll play hardball on fishing rights. And I think there are a whole series of different issues that are going to be drawn into this. And although I think there were clearly some global sighs of relief when the United States and China signed this phase one to kind of ease the tensions over the trade war, it's worth remembering that there are still tariffs on around two-thirds of Chinese goods going into the United States. And there are an awful lot of different issues that are still to be resolved, even though the immediate heat has been taken out of that. And that UK, uh, that US-China trade war um, really did hit the whole global economy pretty seriously. Absolutely. Let's stay with China because, of course, one of the uh, big stories is the coronavirus. Now, this is spreading 1,300 uh, infections worldwide plus. Uh, it's now uh, spread to many countries, including France, just over the channel from here. It's in Australia, it's in Singapore. Uh, it, it, it's really spreading very fast. Elizabeth, what's your take on this? 
So there are two aspects to it. One is the infection. And actually, it turns out that being an authoritarian country um, is quite good when you deal with pandemics because you can just uh, seal off entire cities and, in fact, an entire region and, and the population just has to put up with it. Imagine if if Boris Johnson or, or anybody else, Pretty Patel, <laughs> decided to seal off London. I mean, uh, we would have... During uh, a major <laughs> holiday, like, say, right. Easter or Christmas, yeah. I mean, imagine yeah. that... The, the, uh, the rebellion that would ensue, but you can do that if you're Ch- the Chinese mm-hmm. government. So that's one part. Another part, I think, is the panic. So it hasn't really infected a lot of people yet uh, in the scheme of things. It's just the epidemic catches our imagination and we mm-hmm. get worried. And, and we should compare it to, to the seasonal flu. Actually, a lot of people die of the seasonal flu or, in fact, die in road accidents. But we, we, are, we get so concerned about uh, pandemics because it's, it's something new and unfamiliar and what will, we, what will it do to us? Uh, so I think uh, there is a bit of um, well, maybe too much fear-mongering about this virus. And, and, uh, but it's understandable because it's, it's a leap into, un, into the unknown uh, because it's, it's a new strain. Uh, but I think what we should really be concerned about is when the first person dies in, in a country like the UK. Mm, absolutely. I mean, Carol, this is a story you've been following as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I was hearing a a reporter who's on the ground in Wuhan province, and it now seems as though the Chinese have shut down not just the city, which, as you say, is bigger than London, but the entire province. And there are um, roadblocks, checks on people coming and going. Of course, anyone who has a slightly raised temperature um, is then taken to one of the medical facilities, which in that area are struggling to cope, um, not least with people who fear they may have been infected with the virus. And of course, you're then seeing people who, because they can't get the medical treatment that they need in those areas, managed, despite the restrictions or before they were imposed, to travel to other parts of China, which has contributed to the spread of the disease to other Chinese um, towns and cities. Um, yes, I think there is a danger of, of the, the, the fear of this um, getting beyond the actual threat. I mean, they've at the moment, um, in the UK, they are simply trying to trace passengers who've been to that particular area of China. Um, but it has shed a light on how the Chinese authorities are coping with this. And um, what is extraordinary is, yes, as Elizabeth was saying, the extraordinary way in which China can manage to impose such control on such vast areas and so uh, such large sections of its population. Um, but it has at least been somewhat more open than when the SARS epidemic um, occurred uh, over a decade ago, when it simply hushed up the fact that this was happening at all uh, until several hundred people had died from it. So um, I think a very small step in the right direction from the Chinese. But at the moment, the World Health Organization is saying that it's not um, a global threat. They're monitoring uh, events. There are checks in place in most Western countries. Um, But clearly it has the potential to be very serious. And it's fascinating to see how China is trying to cope with it and trying to emerge from that with its, uh, without doing further damage to its global reputation. Absolutely. As, as, you, as you both say, it's, we've got to keep this in perspective.
Uh, let's have a look at the newspapers now, because uh, lots of lots of big, big stories. We made a reference to uh, impeachment. Uh, and of course, the US papers uh, are going very, very big on this. But it is kind of extraordinary that although it's the sort of first week of hearings, we're not very much further on, are we? No, it's essentially a, a repeat of what has been what was said uh, during the House part of, of this process. And um, Adam Schiff, who is essentially the, the lead prosecutor for for the uh, for the prosecution side, which is the the, the Democrats in essence, um, gave a, a very powerful concluding speech um, uh, just yesterday. But um, does it mean anything will have an effect? It, it may have an effect on Twitter and, and among uh, sort of the global public, but not among the people who are going to vote on this particular case, which is the members of the Senate. And it's it's already clear uh, which way they will vote. So it's an extraordinary spectacle. spectacle. And I remember living through the impeachment of, of Bill Clinton, mm. um, which was uh, similarly... <laughs> gripping and, and I mean incredible news but it's it, at the end of the day this is this is really uh, up to 100 people to decide and and uh, they are not going to be swayed by uh, any speeches in, in, in the Senate chamber, but by com- political considerations relating to their own uh, party loyalties and, and re-election prospects. Mm, yeah, I mean, what is extraordinary is you've got the, the American president on trial for a abuse of power, um, but partly because the Democrats have been blocked from getting some of the papers that they want or subpoenaing the witnesses they want, we haven't actually, during the entire prosecution case, um, learned anything very much. And a lot of the prosecution case has been quite repetitive. Um, there's reports of, of some of the senators inside actually being spotted apparently falling asleep. Mm. One was spotted doing a, a crossword on his mobile uh, and there was a paper plane spotted at one stage, <laughs> although I suspect that that was um, one of the Republican senators trying to um, demonstrate his contempt for the entire proceedings. Um, But what an extraordinary turn of events when Donald Trump now preparing to launch his defence and it will be a political defence. It will be him going out there and saying, I did nothing wrong. There was no quid pro quo. Um, We should just remind people that what he's accused of is withholding um, uh, aid and military deals um, from Ukraine unless the Ukrainian president um, did more to uncover uh, alleged corruption involving a company which had links to Joe Biden, his Democratic rival. And, and Donald Trump is simply trying to turn this to his political advantage. Mm, absolutely. And uh, as, as we started off by saying, uh, Adam Schiff's speech was really, really quite emotive. I mean, he, he said that you, uh, you know you can't trust this president to do what's right for the country. It's gone absolutely viral. People are quoting him all over the place. And, and uh, you know, of course, he's a hero to the left. He's vilified by the right. Uh, and this is something that uh, when you talk about Trump playing to his heartland that you've seen him do again with these uh, uh, abortion marches in Washington. So uh, Trump has now involved himself. He's gone off to speak uh, for this pro-life uh, event. Now, I think what's really interesting here is is that he doesn't really care what the pro-choice people think at all. He knows that those people are never going to vote for him in the way that he knows that that the people who are against him in the impeachment trial are never going to vote for him. He's just got to shore up the votes he knows he's got. 
That's exactly right. And, and I think that's what make this, makes this so cynical. If he had been sort of a lifelong Catholic uh, committed to, to uh, the right of life, including human rights, uh, that would be one thing if he then went out to, with, you know, to protest with his, you know, with those who share his opinions. But he is absolutely, <laughs> I think it's fair to say, he's not somebody who lives by Christian principles. And here he is out uh, with this march, speaking to this march. And by the way, that's something that US presidents, even those who are uh, pro-life, they rarely do they send somebody else or send a statement. Well, um, he was the first sitting president to speak in person at the annual March for Life. That's right. Yeah. And so, and other presidents have a much, have had a much longer uh, history of supporting um, uh, the, the pro-life movement. But here he is, somebody who, who absolutely doesn't live by Christian principles and he, uh, supporting this <coughs> march, which is really sort of a, a, an evangelical Christian march. But he, as you said, needs to shore up his voter base and he knows that these people uh, are very likely to vote for him. And so he, <laughs> he has to uh, just remind them that he's on their side because the, the election is actually quite, coming up quite soon. And... Um, uh, he, even though he doesn't face very stiff opposition, actually, there are some Democrats who could steal a few votes for him, more than a few votes Absolutely. from him. Absolutely. I mean, Carol, he says, uh, unborn children have never had a stronger defender in the White House. What about children who have been born, in fact, migrant children who he's locking up? Well, what is extraordinary, I think, is, yes, Donald Trump prepared to break all the conventions, as we've seen so often. And in many countries, certainly in the UK, um, abortion has long been seen as an issue that essentially it comes down to personal choice now. Now, it has obviously been a much bigger political issue in the past and a much bigger political issue um, in the United States. Um, but I think it, it is very difficult to imagine any UK politician getting directly involved in a row over abortion rights. And indeed, the sensitivity of the issue, I think, was highlighted um, here in the UK when one of the contenders um, to lead the Labour leadership, we've got a big contest going on, who's going to lead the official opposition um, here in the UK. And when Rebecca Long-Bailey, who is one of the leading contenders, who is a Catholic, um, said that she was um, unhappy about one part of the rules here in the UK, which allow um, the abortion of uh, a fetus after the limit if that child is severely disabled. The fact that she mentioned that in an interview in the past with a Catholic magazine um, provoked a huge storm, and she has been trying desperately to extricate her, herself from it. Donald Trump clearly has no qualms about wading in on an issue which, yes, he knows it matters to his core vote and he'll he'll go out there and say what he needs to say to rally them. Well, it's fine to take that position, but I think what's, what's so um, concerning is that Donald Trump, who, who is really, I mean, he's not a, a, like... Unlike Rebecca Long Bailey, doesn't have any sort of religious affiliation. He just does it to pander to political yes, to a pati particular uh, group of voters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now speaking about the Labour Party, as we know, they've had all sorts of problems with anti-Semitism, uh, and of course, we've seen a, a huge uh, anniversary uh, this week, um, and. Uh, uh, a, a very moving one too. So this is uh, 75 years since the liberation of Auschwitz. This is the end of the Holocaust. Uh, a lot of coverage of, of, of this. 
And some incredibly moving stories too. Still, um, I heard a long interview uh, on the radio with an Auschwitz survivor who'd been picked up the Nazis at the by the Nazis at the age of five with his younger sister and was looked after by um, an older woman uh, at the camp. He somehow managed to, to survive. It was the most incredibly moving personal story. Um, but what we have also seen this year is that amidst those extraordinary tales, some very moving ceremonies, um, there has been a lot of politics. Mm. Um, Poland's president was furious that he wasn't invited to the ceremonies. Um, the Israelis have been furious about um, one mention in um, some of the uh, coverage of it uh, about Israel's uh, a wider role and whether there was any equivalence drawn between what is Israelis treatment of the Palestinians with um, with other groups. The Israelis absolutely furious about that. And I think that what we've seen is even 75 years on from the discovery of these appalling camps and the scale of the deaths, um, there is still so much raw tension, so much politics um, that can be drawn into what should be such a solemn and moving occasion. Absolutely. And just to give you a little example here, my father's family from Poland wiped out during the Holocaust. My father survived, never told his children. I did not know this until after his death. Uh, and his reason for it was that he felt that his children, uh, even though you're only Jewish if your mother is Jewish and my mother isn't, but he felt that his children would be ostracised for having any kind of link with 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 Jewishness uh, and of course he's proved right when you look at all the anti-semitism that's around in the world more about that in the book when the crocodile eats the sun <laughs> that will be one to read definitely um, what an extraordinary story uh, Thank you both so much for, for coming on, uh, Elizabeth Braw and Carol Walker. Uh, and thank you to, to our studio manager, Nora Hall, our researcher, Nick Toomey, and our supervising producer, who was Ben Rylan. Uh, this was Monocle's House View. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.